case is submitted. We'll hear argument next in number 94-688, the National Private Truck Council, Inc. versus the Oklahoma Tax Commission. Mr. Allen. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The issue in this case is whether State courts may refuse to enforce remedies under two Federal statutes, Sections 1983 and 1988 of Title 42, in cases challenging State taxes when State courts and State remedies under Sections 1983 and 1988 in such cases. It based that conclusion entirely on what it termed principles of comedy and federalism, The main consequence of that ruling in this case is to deny Petitioners a right to recover their attorneys' fees that they would otherwise have under Section 
uh, I don't see why it would be implied in a 1983 action that you necessarily had a pre-deprivation remedy. Uh, well, I, you're coming in claiming the right to declaratory and or, and or injunctive relief. States, you can't get these taxes. Now, that is in the, the nature, I think, of a pre-deprivation remedy. <clears throat> well, l- uh, let me simply repeat that that's not an issue in this case. I think that, that the probable outcome, if, that was, was pre- if the issue was squarely presented, the, logical, the logic would probably be that, that a person who filed a 1983 action challenging a state tax in state court before he paid the tax, and if the state court uh, made, a fi- made a final adjudication that the state tax was unconstitutional, I do believe that Section 1983 would, would entitle the taxpayer in that circumstance to uh, injunctive or declaratory relief, which would, in effect, uh, and preclude the state. You no, know, that's precisely what this Court has been careful to say. Uh, the states don't have to do, that they can at least require people to pay their taxes and litigate later and follow certain claims procedures in doing so. Well, well, I think you have a strong argument, but it does seem to me that if, it, if you're right and if no adjustments are appropriate here, that it would have a rather dramatic effect on established law in this area. Well, you raise a very pertinent question, but I think we have to be very careful here because the point you just made was that the court has been careful to preserve the right of states to, or at least the constitutional right of states, putting apart the the requirements of any federal statute, the constitutional rights of states to require people to pay their taxes before they litigate the ultimate question. But what I'm saying is that, in my view, under Section 1983, if you filed an action and there was a litigation that finally determined that the tax was unconstitutional, in other words, you had done your litigation, then it seems to me... Well, you file 1983, you get a preliminary injunction. Well, there's That's a, the way it works. And, and there you are. There the state is, can't collect the tax. There, there's a very important distinction, I think, for, purposes, for these purposes between a preliminary injunction and a permanent injunction. The point I was making earlier was that when you have filed your action and have come to a final judgment in the trial court, and the final judgment is the state is un- that the tax is unconstitutional, I believe that under 1983 you would be entitled to a permanent injunction against the collective tax. What, what, what if a state had a requirement, just like the federal government does now, that there simply shall not be injunctions issued in joining the collection of a tax? I think in those cases, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, the, the state scheme has to yield to the federal, to the federal remedies. And so I think that the federal remedy requires the states to do something that Congress has said the federal government can't be required to do. I, I think that's correct, Your Honor. But, but let me return to... Then, uh, then the, what sense does that make in terms of the Tax Injunction Act? You say that there the concern is you don't want the federal courts to be telling the states. Isn't it so much worse to tell the states, but you've got to do it. You've got to be the ones... To say it. you can't have your own constitution. Well, well I think that's right, Justice Ginsburg. Let me let me give you an example. I think that the federal scheme, the Section 1983, gives taxpayers, state taxpayers, a right to equitable relief when a state tax is unconstitutional. A good example would be, in my view, a poll tax, which this court has held to be to violate the Equal Protection Clause. Now, if a state had a poll tax that required poor people to pay. $20 before they could vote, 
if a state also had a statute that said, uh, but you've got to pay your tax before you, can, uh, before you can litigate the validity of it, I submit to you that the taxpayer in that situation would have a right under Section 1983 to an injunction in joining the enforcement of that poll tax. Against whom? Whom whom have you sued here? Have you sued the state? You can't sue the state under 1983, can you? No, in my example against the official. Who are you suing here in this case? The official. The official. Can you sue the official in his official capacity under 1983? Yes, you can. Have we said that? Yes, you have. Where? For an injunction and declaratory relief. For injunctive and declaratory relief. Not for damages. That's exactly right. So, in my example of the poll tax, you would sue the election official who was seeking to, to make the individual pay the tax, and you would get an injunction uh, prohibiting him from, from enforcing where, that poll tax. That seems to me to be logical said, and appropriate Where have we result. said that you may sue him under 1983 for an injunction? In you know, the Will versus Michigan State Police, footnote 10, is, the, uh, is where where you have distinguished, you, you reaffirmed the well-established distinction. Well, that's an 11th Amendment rule, yes. Uh, I have no doubt under the 11th Amendment, injunctive actions against, uh, against uh, officials in their official capacity are not deemed to be against the state. But that doesn't mean that, the, that Section 1983, the word person in 1983, has to be read the same way, does it? Well, it, it Will was a Section 1983 case, and in that case, in footnote 10, footnote the Footnote 10 court, in Will is, is, is the only, the only uh, authority you have. Uh, footnote 10 in Will, uh, I think, clearly established that, that under Section 1983, uh, and, and really reaffirmed the distinction between perspective and damage relief, that under Section 1983, one may obtain injunctive and declaratory well, relief. Well, let me ask you this. Injunctive and declaratory relief are, uh, by their nature, equitable. That's, that's true. And I assume, then, that it is possible that the notion that uh, states uh, can provide adequate post-deprivation remedies at law could be a principle that would enable the state court to say we will deny equitable relief because there's a plain, speedy remedy at law here. No equitable relief. How would that work? Well, I'm not sure I understand the question. If, if Well, if it, the remedy thought in, in the state court is essentially an equitable one, would it not be open to the state court to deny uh, an injunction or declaratory relief on the grounds that we have in this state a plain, a speedy, and adequate remedy at law? I don't believe so, Your Honor, uh, not under Section 1983. To return to my poll tax example, I don't think in that example the state court could say the man can sue and get, get a refund of his poll tax after he litigates the validity because of Because that's poll. obviously not a plain, adequate remedy if you can't vote without paying the tax. I mean, that, that wouldn't satisfy the Tax Injunction Act requirement, would it? The two um, afterwards, you have to come up with the money first, and, that, and then that's what prevents people from voting? I mean, nobody's ever suggested the Tax Injunction Act would prevent a suit to enjoin the payment of a poll tax. Well, I don't, I don't know why, why, why one would because not. Because the state doesn't provide an adequate remedy when it says you, you can't vote, uh, which is what would be the effect of that. Well, I really don't... That, that may be true, but I really don't see the distinction between, between that and any other unconstitutional tax. Uh, you can't operate in your, your trucks in the state of Oklahoma without paying this tax. 
uh, you've got to pay the tax and litigate uh, Yes, but those, later. there's nothing at stake except the, the interest in not having to pay the amount of money. It's, there's not, nothing like the right to vote is implicated in any of these other cases. Well, the right to engage in interstate commerce in the state of Oklahoma. I mean, you, don't, you can't afford to engage and pay the tax? Well, you it's might not, decide that if, if you're Mr. Uh, um, Mr. Griffiths here, you might decide instead of operating in Oklahoma, I'm going to operate in Arkansas where I have to pay this tax. It's a burden. It's a very significant burden. Um, but, but it's but, a burden in any case. It's a burden that can economically be redressed. After the election is over, you can't go back and vote again. I mean, that, there, there's no economic equivalence there, whereas in the, in the trucking case, there is. Well, the, the question was, I believe, the question was, is it open to a state, uh, to a state court who has determined that a tax is unconstitutional? Is it open to that state court to say, you still got to pay it, uh, and, and then, then go for your refund later. And I submit that under the scheme of Section 1983, that's simply not open. Well, except that I suppose that isn't what the Court would do. The Court wouldn't go through a prepayment adjudication. The Court would simply say, we don't enjoin. If you want to challenge this tax, you've got to pay it, and we'll adjudicate it then. It well, wouldn't, that, that's it wouldn't say you're going to win your case before it's heard it. That's why I think it's important to understand and draw this a careful distinction between a request for preliminary injunctive relief and a, quest for, and a request for final injunctive relief. Now, if we're talking about a request for preliminary injunctive relief, then I submit that if you, whether you're filing under Section 1983 or any other statute, the courts can and properly do impose upon the, the claimant a very high showing. He has to show irreparable injury. He has to show a strong likelihood of success in the merits and all the rest of it. And, and I have no dispute with the proposition that, that when you're requesting preliminary relief before there's been an adjudication of the merits, the courts can properly deny it if you haven't met those high standards. And, in fact, in this very case, we sought preliminary injunctive relief in the trial judge yeah, but that doesn't go — it seems to me I, I agree with you, but that doesn't go to the point of the hypothetical. The point of the hypothetical is if you have an adequate remedy of law after the fact, you, the petitioner for the relief, are not entitled to a, 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 a prepayment adjudication. Well, you're, you're not entitled to — you may not be entitled to preliminary relief, and, and, and I wouldn't dispute that. And as I was about to say, in this case, the trial judge denied a request for preliminary relief even though he said you're probably going to win on the merits, and we didn't dispute that. But the proposition that we're facing is what, putting aside the question for preliminary relief, there's been a full adjudication, and the trial judge says, hey, I'm persuaded that this tax is unconstitutional. Sure, but if you win in this case, is the implication that the judge would have had to do something different at the preliminary stage. No. And, the, and, and so you, no. You, you agree that if, in fact, there is a post-deprivation remedy, uh, even if a court is, is required to entertain uh, at least some claim for relief under 1983, it would not have to provide a pre-deprivation remedy. It would not have to provide a preliminary injunctive injunction. Well, it wouldn't have to provide a remedy to your petitioner before your petitioner paid the tax. Do you agree? I agree with ha part of that question, but let me try to explain my answer. I agree that he wouldn't be entitled to preliminary injunctive relief, but if, if we're at the stage where there's been a full adjudication and the, and the court has decided this tax is unconstitutional, obviously unconstitutional, as the Supreme Court of Oklahoma said here, then I submit that the petitioner would be entitled to injunctive relief. But he doesn't need it because the court says the tax is unconstitutional. He may not need it, and therefore, therefore we're really arguing about something that has no significant impact on the states. But I submit to you that if, that if the 
tax collector nevertheless threatened to levy on his property, that he would be entitled under but Section 1983 to injunctive relief. Excuse me. Mr. Sorry. Allen, just, you just said that the State Court has said this tax is unconstitutional. Once the State Court says that, how can any State tax collector go out and levy on the property? Most of them won't, but sometimes they will. The point is that injunctive relief is, in those situations where the tax collector would threaten to levy on the property, injunctive relief is not only appropriate, no. but I submit required no. by Section but 8. Mr. Allen, the reality is the State Court is going to want to say, we're not going to litigate this to finality. Because there is a plain, speedy, adequate remedy at law. You pay your taxes, and then you litigate it, and we're not going to decide the merits of this case in the present posture. Now, that's what a state court would like to say. And it seems to me that faced with the notion that we have recognized an equitable defense, if you will, to injunctive or equitable relief, that that might be perfectly proper. Well, I have to only respectfully submit that in some circumstances I don't think it would be. Let's take a case where the state enacts a tax, what is it now, April, and they're going to impose a million-dollar tax on me next January 1 that applies only to black people, let's say. And I go into federal court. I go into state court, and I say, enjoin that tax because it's clearly unconstitutional. I would think you would have no standing in that case. Putting aside the standing question, a tax only on, I don't know, gray-haired white men, right? I think I could go into state court and say, enjoin that tax. And I don't think the state court could, under our scheme of 1983, say, sorry, you've got to pay the tax and litigate later. In this case, if all you were entitled to under some of the earlier suppositions was a future injunction, are your attorney's fees just limited to that? I'm sorry, I'm not. Well, if there were adequate remedies under state law, and all you're saying is that your argument earlier was at least you're entitled to a future injunction, are your attorney's fees limited to just the value of obtaining the future injunction? Well, I don't know how you would value attorney's fees. Neither do I. That's why I asked the question. By the value of it. I think you're entitled, if you're entitled to any relief under Section 1983, you're entitled to your reasonable attorney's fees. The reasonable attorney's fees for the future injunction? Because you have your other relief under the other cause of action. Well, I don't know. I frankly don't know. I mean, I don't. Back up and explain to me how you would ever get injunctive relief once you've had complete adequate remedy at law. You've gotten the refund back with whatever interest is due. What injunction would you then get? Well, in this case, for example, and typically in many of these cases, you get a final judgment on the merits, and the judgment reads, tax commission shall refund, and furthermore, we permanently enjoin the tax commission from enjoining the tax. It's all done at the same time. The judgments in these cases typically include. We're talking about the judgment of a state court. Yes. In a case like this. Yes. And if it makes the injunction, it would make it under what law? Well, normally they don't specify. They just say the final judgment for the plaintiffs, and here it is ordered as follows, and then. I didn't realize that was the case. I assume that the state would assume the good faith of its tax commission 
and so, would just say refund and not say, and we enjoin the tax commission. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. In fact, the fact of the matter is, I think, as, as, as some of the justices have pointed out, once there's been a final determination of unconstitutionality, whether or not a formal injunction is entered or not is, is, is largely uh, pro forma. Um, and in ma- but in many cases, the, the courts do issue injunctions, and in some cases they say we don't need to issue an injunction here. Well, the place where it makes a difference, I think, is between is what has to happen between the time you first challenge the tax and the time there's an ultimate adjudication. Are you entitled to at least ask for and perhaps get a preliminary injunction, or can the state say we just don't issue injunctions in this kind of case? You've got to pay first and then we'll adjudicate your claim. I think they can impose the normal requirements that are imposed on persons seeking preliminary injunctions. Well, can they impose a special rule on anybody who seeks to enjoin the collection of a tax? Um, no, I don't believe they can. I think under Section 1980, I, I think under the federal scheme, if it's, if it's a federally unconstitutional tax, then um, and there's been a de- — I don't think they can — they can — Well, nobody knows when you start out whether it's a federally unconstitutional tax or not. That's something ulti- you're ultimately entitled to a determination of somewhere in the state court system. But wh- what is the interim status quo? Well, if, if you seek a preliminary injunction, the court looks at whether there's irreparable injury and the degree of the likelihood of success and all the rest and, of those And things. adequate legal remedies. And the, the point of the Chief Justice's question, I, I thought, at least to me, was why are you entitled to an injunction under normal equitable principles? Why? And, and cannot we elaborate those equitable principles as a matter of federal law in tax injunction suits under 1983? Well, I think under normal equitable principles, when you get to the point where there's been a final determination of unconstitutionality, under well, normal... No, but the Chief Justice's question uh, pertained to a preliminary injunction. Under a preliminary, under preliminary injunction, uh, at the preliminary injunction stage, I don't think the... I mean, in my view, I don't think that states can say as a blanket matter when, you ch- when you're challenging a, a state tax as uh, unconstitutional, as a blanket matter, we're not going to issue preliminary injunctions. I think that they can they can impose on, on, on litigants the normal standards of, of of preliminary injunctions, but I don't think they can erect a, a special standard that 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 would apply to people challenging unconstitutional state taxes. I, and I would also point out that 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 preliminary injunctions, although you have to meet a high burden, are not unknown in this area. We cited in our reply brief an instance a few years ago uh, involving an Arkansas truck tax where Justice Blackman issued, in effect, a form of preliminary injunctive relief when he required the state to put the taxes in an escrow fund. That is a form of preliminary injunctive relief. It's all, of the, all of this turns, I take it, on, on there being no exhaustion requirement, which, in essence, this would be. Is that, is that the basis for your argument? When you say no exhaustion requirement, um, I'm not sure what you mean. Well, an adequate, I suppose you can look at an adequate remedy of law uh, as, as being a, a base that has to be touched. And if there is an adequate remedy of law, you wouldn't be entitled to any injunctive relief unless that remedy for some peculiar reason was denied to you. Uh, and, and I took it that what you were arguing was there's no exhaustion requirement in 1983 if you impose the adequacy of, of, of the legal remedy uh, criterion, you in effect are imposing an exhaustion requirement, and that is inconsistent with the 1983 cases. Maybe I misunderstood you. 
Well, if that, I, is I not your, if that is not your argument, then I guess I don't understand what your argument is based on. Well, I, I think the question of, of whether or not states can require you to exhaust some administrative remedy is, is a somewhat different question here than, I th- than one we've been addressing, which is what can states do when you seek a preliminary injunction in court? So maybe I'm not understanding your, 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 your question correctly. I think that also, with respect to state requirements that you exhaust some administrative remedy that you go through the tax commission when you have a claim of unconstitutional taxes, I think that under the scheme of Section 1983, those would probably also not be able to be imposed. But May I ask you a more basic question for a moment? Do you think a state uh, could say, we have state procedures that vindicate both state and federal constitutional rights, and they include exhaustion and lots of other things, we are simply not going to entertain any 1983 actions. There's nothing in the federal statute that requires that remedy to be enforced in any court except a federal court. Could I don't think, no, I think clearly states could not do that. Why, what, what's your authority for that? Well, there are lots of cases that say that, uh, Howlett v. Rhodes, for example, that says that states cannot, cannot refuse to enforce uh, Section 19. They cannot interpose a sovereign immunity defense in the federal case if they would not impose in the state case. That's right. That didn't hold they must entertain 1983 cases ab initio. Well, there, there, uh, th- that gets back to a, a very basic question of, of what the obligations of state courts are, and we submit that, that they may be an obligation to enforce the substantive federal constitutional right, but that's quite different from saying they must enforce the procedural remedy that Congress has provided for federal courts in 1983. Well, 1983 is, a, is what Congress has applied not only for federal courts, but also for state courts, and it's well established. Well, that's the whole purpose of, the, of the, that legislation, to give you a cause of action in federal court, because the state courts the concern was at that time would not enforce your federal rights. No, no Justice Ginsburg, this, it's, it's well settled that, uh, that, that 1983 is enforceable in state courts as that, well as that federal courts. wasn't the history of 1983, wasn't the very reason it was created, was well, that the state courts were not trusted to handle these civil rights cases, and so a federal remedy was created. Well, that, that, that may be true, but, uh, but, but the Court has nevertheless held that state courts are, are state it's courts as much are, law in the states as it is in the federal no, They court. may in, in, in entertain 1983 cases, but we've never held they must. Well, no, but you have held in, in, in many, many cases that, federal, that state courts have an obligation, a fundamental obligation, to enforce and apply federal law. That, that, that you said in Howlett v. Rose, for example. law. Federal substantive law, but Section 1988 is certainly federal substantive law. It, it, it entitles part of the 1983 remedy. Yes, it's part of the federal. It's, it's an important part, I might add, but it's also it is also a substantive law. It imposes an obligation on on, on states in these well, kind of cases. Mr. Allen, I'm still struggling with some doubt as to as to whether uh, whether you should be able to bring a 1983 action against a, an officer for injunction uh, anyway. Uh, I've, I've gone back and checked on Will, and it's the clearest dictum in Will. We have no holding on the point on whether you can bring a 1983 action against a state officer in his official capacity for injunctive relief. Well, certainly Will indicates that that's the case. More than and I think it Will says it flat out, yeah. uh, but, but, uh, but it's dictum in the case, and, and the only reason it says it is because that's what we've held with respect to 11th Amendment law. But this is a statute. It's not the 11th Amendment. And it's certainly open to us to interpret the statute simply not to allow a 1983 suit against an officer acting in his official capacity. Well, that would undo, it seems to me, that would undo an awful lot of Section That's what I wanted to ask you. What, what, what harm would be done? What, uh, what, what well, there are lots of fees would befall? 
there are lots of instances outside the tax area where, where uh, injunctive relief against a, uh, a state officer acting uh, uh, in violation of the Constitution is, is essential. Um, and would not be available otherwise than under 1983? Well, I don't know whether it would be available otherwise. But it's certainly it, but available but, otherwise but it, here. But in cases, I'm not sure whether it would, would or would not be available. But let's take a case where, where a state official is, 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 is enforcing some blatantly racially discriminatory policy and you want him to stop. It seems to me under Section 1983 you can get an injunction, and under Section 1988 you're entitled to Personally, certainly you could, but, but you're seeking an injunction against him in his official capacity. Yes, even if, even if he was acting in good faith and believed uh, with some reason that, the, that, the, that what he was doing was constitutional, I think you can get an injunction against him under Section 1988, and I think you can get attorney's fees under Section, under Section 1988. Do, do you ask in the prayer for relief against the officer as a named officer? Yes. Well, in, in your complaint on page 26, you ask for an injunction against the Oklahoma Tax Commission. It's at page 26 of the Joint Appendix. As a matter of pleading, aren't you supposed to name the officer? Well, to come within the ex parte young. We we did uh, name the officers in the in the in the complaint and in the in, in the style of the complaint and in, and, in, and, 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 and in the and in the and in the in the in the in the body of the complaint, we named them all. Um, just to finish answering your question, I, I notice here that we did not, in that particular prayer for relief. Uh, in that paragraph, specify the, the officers, but certainly throughout this case, and as the Oklahoma Supreme Court held, uh, we have made clear that we were suing the individuals here in their official capacity for injunctive relief. Thank you, Mr. Allen. Uh, Mr. Johnson, we'll hear from you. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. I think a very important question that is before the Court that has to be answered is, did Congress intend to impose on state courts the obligation to apply federal remedies under 1983 or 1988 or otherwise in state tax challenges when a plain, speedy, and efficient remedy is available and may be had under state law? I submit that Congress had no such intention and, and did not accomplish that with 1983. The nature of this case is more than just an injunction. The, the lawsuit was brought under the state statute that provided that anyone who wishes to challenge the constitutionality of a tax statute um, or, the, uh, or its violation under a federal statute uh, must give notice after uh, it has been assessed or proposed to be assessed, must give notice, pay, uh, pay the tax under protest, and then may file a lawsuit in district court, the state's trial court, for its recovery. <clears throat> now, the statute, of course, does not provide for injunctions. Oklahoma does not, as, as do some states, have any specific statute prohibiting enjoining a state tax, although Oklahoma case law has on several occasions prohibited it. Uh, declaratory relief uh, has been allowed under Oklahoma case law uh, against the tax if the tax is not yet due. Once the tax is due and proposed to be assessed, however, the Oklahoma, Oklahoma statutes provide basically uh, two remedies. One is the administrative hearing remedy, which also can be used at the taxpayer's uh, option uh, to challenge a proposed assessment uh, on any grounds, including 
grounds state or constitutional uh, questions or violation of federal law. In addition to that remedy, um, by the way, in the administrative hearing uh, procedure, uh, the hearing is held before the task commission as an agency, and its order is directly appealable to the Oklahoma Supreme Court. As an alternative, and this is what was used in this case, Oklahoma law provides that instead of uh, filing an administrative protest, that the taxpayer can pay the taxes under protest, file suit in district court for the recovery. That is what has happened in this case. However, so here the taxpayer did comply with Oklahoma <laughs> procedures, at least in that respect. That is true. And for the uh, uh, access to the courts under this, and this is Title 68, Section 226 of the Oklahoma Statutes, under the Action 226, which this was brought, brought uh, there is no need other than uh, giving notice of intent and paying the taxes under protest within 30 days. That is the only exhaustion or requirement that is uh, necessary that the, that the Oklahoma courts have declared necessary. Uh, this taxpayer complied with all of that? Yes, they did. Yes, Your Honor. Um, <clears throat> the, um, so your uh, claim is uh, limited to just saying, but no 1983 action will lie at all. The decision below, and, and the, is our position in support of that decision, that where there is a plain adequate remedy available under state law, and we submit that there is such a remedy under Section 226, that although the, this Court has obviously said that state courts may, inter, uh, may entertain 1983 actions, we believe that it is consistent with the Congress's policy that the state courts need not exercise the jurisdiction or to entertain a 1983 action to accomplish the exact same thing uh, that they can accomplish under state law, where in fact they can accomplish more. For instance, the state law under which this case arose uh, provides for refunds. They could not get refunds under 1983. Uh, even if but of we course, uh, if, if uh, the petitioners are right, they get attorney's fees, and I guess attorney's fees would not be available under state law. That is correct. That's the only thing that they can't get under state law that they might get under uh, 1983 and its attendant, Section 1988, because state law does not provide for attorney's fees. But you're looking at it from the point of view, as everyone is from tax law, but forgetting tax law for the moment, isn't it normal that the 1983 remedy is treated as if state law gives a plaintiff all the remedies that 1983 gives them but attorney's fees, still they recover their attorney's fees under 1983? Isn't that the normal rule? Because you could have two causes of action get you to the same result, but Congress wanted to give these civil rights plaintiffs attorney's fees. And then the question becomes, well, well, why should you make an exception here? I, I certainly can't answer. I, I will accept that because my exp expertise, if any there is with 1983, certainly doesn't go much beyond the tax area. But I accept that as a, as a basic statement. But I believe that the difference is, and why not in this case, is because when Congress enacted 1983 and then uh, they were aware, for instance, that in the tax area, it was common that the only right that anyone had to challenge a, a state tax was in the nature of a, an action in assumption. It was to pay it and sue to recover it. More importantly, when the attorney's fee uh, provision was enacted, Congress had already, uh, in 1937, I believe, 
had already provided that uh, there are restrictions against the federal courts from interfering in state tax matters. But that, that, it seemed to me, which is a very strong argument, would argue for an exception to the no-exhaustion principle. You see, that, that's the, the, exhaust, the no-exhaustion principle is read into 1983-88 uh, via this Court's decision in Patsy versus Regents. And there were strong policy reasons for doing that and reading that. And you have very strong policy reasons as to not to interfere but don't, I mean, I thought maybe the, pol- I'm not suggesting this is a conclusion, I, uh, but the policy reasons might read out the no exhaustion. And if they read out the no exhaustion, then the, the main policy objection to applying it is gone. But for attorney's fees. And yet we have a basic congressional decision that you get your attorney's fees when something violates the Civil Rights Act as well as violating state law. That, that's what I'd appreciate a reaction to. I, I think that the, uh, probably the answer to that is uh, if we take that approach, then you say, well, we, will, uh, we could extend 1983, uh, uh, its application, to state tax uh, uh, matters, but uh, we'll change our interpretation so that, there's no, that you can have an exhaustion limit. Uh, however, if you do that, I, I think that you're then going back uh, and... Uh, disregarding what the purpose of 1983 was and whether or not it was ever intended to apply in such cases in the first place. Is there some reason it wasn't intended to apply in, for violations of the Commerce Clause, whereas it was intended to apply for violations of uh, the 14th Amendment? I mean, in other words, the, the thing that's worrying me about this entire case is the, not this area, but what the impact is on some other area and whether it's possible to create an exception here. And why would you? If I, if I understand the concern, I don't think that uh, what we're talking about is creating an exception here, but it recognizing that it never did apply in the first place. Uh, because I believe that Congress, when it uh, enacted the Tax Injunction Act, clearly expressed an attitude and a policy of federal non-interference uh, and non-intrusion into the state tax area with one requirement, of course, that there be a plain, speedy, and adequate remedy of a that, that assumed that assumed that 1983 would apply. It could well assume that. Well, but didn't I, it, didn't it, I mean, wouldn't it have been re- pointless if, if it had not assumed that? I think not, Your Honor, because uh, in the in the times when the Tax Injunction Act uh, was enacted, uh, as I understand, historically you had usually the situation where interstate uh, businesses or taxpayers were challenging state tax laws, not on the basis of 1983, but uh, uh, usually seeking injunctions uh, pending the litigation and often causing the states, because uh, of their ability and the taxpayers' ability, to uh, either have to give up the case or to accept something less than what was owed uh, or else have their entire collecting mechanism, at least to that extent, disrupted during litigation. And Congress perceived that as an evil, and I don't recall that 1983 remedies were involved in that. Uh, but they, uh, in I, I guess, what's, I guess what, I, I'm, what perplexes me is if 1983 was not required to authorize the federal courts to give those remedies, why was 1983 required to give the federal courts authority to provide remedies in 14th Amendment cases? Well, as I understand the, the historical basis of 1983, it was perceived that either there were no state law remedies or they may have been on the books, but they were not being enforced. 
so that a federal forum and a federal remedy were provided. Uh, of course, 1983 and its application have expanded far beyond the uh, civil rights uh, scope. Because of the way it's written. Because of the way it's written and the continuing situations that come before the courts. But I submit that it was never intended, and although it is very, very broadly worded, it is, it is so broadly worded to cover probably situations that I, that I can't conceive of today, but I do not believe that considering the, the, uh, the history and, and the knowledge, presumed knowledge of Congress when both 1983, the Ku Klux Act, uh, uh, was passed, and also when the uh, years later, when 1988 was added to it, uh, I do not believe Congress ever supposed or intended, nor do I believe the wording goes or requires this court uh, to apply those remedies, the federal remedies, in state tax action. Mr. Johnston, if you're right, then wasn't the end of the road in the Dennis case wrong? That is, there was, when that case was remanded, there was an award of council fees under 1988. Is that correct? I believe that to be true, Your Honor, but I, and I will, if I am incorrect, uh, I will apologize, but I do not believe that this argument was made or even considered even on remand. I, I, I think it just but was taken as a given. Let's, let's assume you're right about that, that it wasn't even considered. If one considers it, how, how must one rule and accept your, accepting your argument? Can, in that Dennis case, there be, at the end of the line, council fees under 1988? If I understand the question, I believe if they had considered the question that is in, present in yes. this case, yes. that the state would have been justified in accepting, as the court below did, yes, we are now told and we understand that the Commerce Clause will provide a basis for 1983 actions. However, the, uh, the state law provides a full remedy, and therefore we are justified under uh, principles of federalism and comedy, uh, considering the policy of Congress in not entertaining that, because I don't believe this court's decision, Dennis, didn't consider it. If it had been considered, I think we would have a different situation. I, I, it, it's a fact that they did award attorney's fees, but I think they stopped with the court's decision, Dennis, and did not consider the next question, which is the question that we have here today. If petitioners are right, uh, following up on, a, on an earlier question, I, I believe that uh, it both said, well, why shouldn't we do it? What harm, what harm would it do? Uh, why don't we uh, require states to give the federal remedies? Well, where do you stop? Do you have to start creating uh, specific uh, exceptions or grants or so forth? Because, for instance, although under an action in, under Oklahoma Statute 226, the suit for recovery, exhaustion of administrative remedies are not required, I believe other states do have those requirements, that before you can go to court, uh, you have to have uh, follow certain administrative processes. Generally speaking, under 1983, those are not, uh, not, have not been required by the court. Uh, statutes of limitations, for instance. Generally, the uh, statute of limitations under 1983 has been held to be the uh, general uh, tort statute uh, under the state. However, states typically have much, much shorter statutes of limitations, uh, notice requirements, notice of claim requirements uh, for tax challenges. Now, all of these requirements that the states typically have have, of course, been approved by the court and have been observed to be constitutional and allowable and also very necessary 
to the state's interest in protecting, controlling, and, and administering the, the public fisc. Uh, if, if the petitioners are right, then it's not just a matter of a preliminary injunction. If the petitioner's position is, is accepted, then all of the po- possible remedies under 1983. Now, what's involved in this case between these parties, of course, is attorney's fees. But the implications of this case and the, and the questions go much farther than that. And I would submit that uh, allowing, not only allowing, we've already allowed states to entertain them, which they may do if, if they want, but requiring them to enforce federal remedies in situations where Congress has said those same federal remedies we withhold in federal courts, I think is truly anomalous indeed. May I ask you a, a question about sort of the way the case uh, developed? The complaint, as I read it, it doesn't say what provisions they're relying on until they get to count three and they say they're relying on 1983. The Oklahoma Supreme Court, in its opinion, said we allowed a refund to plaintiffs based upon the refund procedures in 68 OS 1981, section 226.1, and so forth. I don't understand that the plaintiffs relied on those refund procedures in their pleadings. Did they, or am I mistaken? Uh, Yes, Your Honor. As a matter of fact, in... uh Reading from the uh, the joint appendix at uh, page 20, which is a part of the uh, petition, the, the plaintiff's petition of complaint right. in this case, where they cite jurisdiction. They, they cite that this court has jurisdiction on this action under 68 OS 1981, section 226, and Title 12, 1651. 1651 and oh, is the Declaratory Judgments Act. And so they specifically invoked the court's jurisdiction to entertain this action and you, under you, 226. You're, in effect, saying that, that, that they pleaded in the alternative, a state remedy and a federal remedy, and it was within the power of the state court to say, we'll grant the state relief and we just won't, won't grant the other relief. Actually, I have a little bit sharper uh, uh, position than that. I, I think they didn't plead in the alternative. They just appended a 1983 statement in order to claim attorney's fees because they weren't allowed under state well, they're, law. They're count three. When they, they write about the jurisdictional provision, but when they get around to asking for relief, they seem to rely. I thought they had relied, and I misread it, I see, on the federal statute only. But supposing they had just pleaded the federal statute, say that this court of general jurisdiction, we're not going to ask for you to apply your refund procedures, but we're going to ask as a matter of federal law for precisely the same relief that we could get under state law, but we want it under the federal statute. I believe that they would have a. Uh, I think they would they have just a never cited the refund I, because I, I don't. I don't think that uh, basically it would be available under 1983. First, if they were not concerned about refunds, they're either going to be in a position of simply suing to declare the statute unconstitutional. No, no. I'm saying they they, they say the relief we want is we're going to pay the taxes now, so you won't have the normal. We think that's a fair requirement. We're going to and we're and we're going to pay the taxes. We merely want a refund, and after we get a refund, uh, an injunction against future imposition of taxes which we think we're entitled to as a matter of federal law, and it doesn't, uh, it doesn't interfere with any state policy except your unwillingness to pay attorney's fees. Well, I would submit that it's not that what they're asking for in, in your scenario would not be provided for by federal law because there would be in a position of saying, we want a refund under federal law, but you're suing the state for a refund. Uh, that, that, is, that is an action against the state, notwithstanding... But we're doing it in the state old, court. We're doing it in state court. We're doing it in the state court, but if... 
If the only no, basis no, for a refund is 1983, it doesn't, it doesn't authorize one, at least according to the cases, because that, in effect, is a suit for refund against the state under 1983, and the state is a person. Yeah, I, I don't think that 1983 actions, there is no federal remedy or federal cause of action under 1983 for a refund of state taxes. Well, why not? If it's, it, it, the range of 1983 is pretty broad about any, you know, I can't quote it to you, but it's pretty broad. And, and if there's been a collection of taxes in violation of constitutional rights, well, the, why? The, because, because the language of the statute itself, it says that it has to be uh, an action against a person, and the uh, refund well, action is against the state. You're asking us to reject the footnote that Justice Scalia was addressing himself to a little earlier. Is that well, part of your case? Um, no, you, only for damages, you're saying. The footnote was yes. injunctive relief. Yes. Oh, I see. Yeah. So I, I was talking about if they say we want refunds under federal law, it's not there because 1983 doesn't provide it because an action for refunds is against the state. Yes, but, 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 but so what? I mean, why, why isn't Because an action against the state uh, for damages, for refunds, is, uh, is not, has not been permitted in 1983. Because well, that was the holding of will. But not under... I believe so. Yeah. Not under, not, but that was an 11th Amendment case. Was I, I, I am not aware uh, for, for, uh, for any purpose that, uh, and, I, and of course I don't think petitioners... Your, your position say. is that our footnote in Will was not confined or controlled by the 11th Amendment. It was just an interpretation of the meaning of person under 1983. I, I, I read it as simply for what it says is that persons, uh, and that I read it for, being a, for purposes of 1983. And a state is not a person. The state is not a person. And therefore, I believe an, an action for damages in the nature of refunds, I do not believe would be permissible under 1983. So my answer, I think, to your question is that they would not be successful if they just disregarded state law because their only right to a refund is provided by state law. But they would have succeeded in one of their objectives, which was to declare the state law declared unconstitutional. They would have. And even so under normal 1983 law, they would be a prevailing party entitled to attorney's fees. And the only way, I guess, you can avoid it is <coughs> the state has a right not to put 1983 in state court in tax matters. I can't think of any other way to avoid it. Well, they're not entitled to attorney's fees anyway, are they? I mean, as I read 1988, it says uh, the court in its discretion may allow the prevailing party. Why don't you just uh, argue that it would be an abuse of discretion for federal courts uh, in cases like this to allow the attorney's fees, or for state courts? Well, for one reason, I don't believe that we need to take that position. I don't need, I don't think we are required under federal law to argue that after the trial is completely over. I think we can argue the question of whether or not we have to apply any or grant any federal remedies. We can argue that in the first instance, and that is our position, that where you have complete remedies under state law, that we need not uh, entertain a 1983 action to a part of the same thing. And is that just in tax cases, or is that also in a case where there are state laws of assault and battery and uh, all kinds of other laws, and the person under the 14th Amendment makes exactly the same claim for attorney's fees? And does this rule apply there, too? I'm suggesting it is only in state tax And the reason it's only, the only way, I guess, I'm not arguing with you as much as I'm trying to think it through, to tell you the truth, but the, 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 the only basis you have for saying that is because of the Tax Injunction Act. And now the Tax Exemption Act, you'd have to look into the policies underlying that. And then once I get to the policies underlying it, that's why I came back to the idea, which is only experimental, about the the, uh, possibility that that act justifies doing away with the exhaustion requirement. 
But, that, but that's the structure of the argument. There isn't some other problem that's caused or some other reason. Well, that is the structure of the argument. And the argument is that uh, both 19, 1983 and its attendant 1988 and Section 1341, the tax injunction, of course, they are both expressions of policy. Every act of Congress is. And at the same time, we had a Congress wanting to make sure that there were substantive remedies available and usable for persons uh, whose rights, uh, uh, substantive rights in the Constitution and federal laws had been violated. They wanted to make sure that those people had a remedy. And, in, of course, when it initially was passed, uh, even if the remedy was on the books, often it wasn't enforced, so they provide a federal forum and a federal remedy. They certainly provided a federal remedy now, even if it's enforced in a state court. But at the same time, that danger did not then uh, and certainly does not now exist in the er area of the realm of state taxes. And con that same Congress, who expressed the policy under 1983, has also expressed a policy under 1341 that the federal government, including federal remedies, should stay out of state tax matters basically only so long as uh, there is an adequate remedy, the contrary of what 1983 uh, started out to be. But that seems to, to undermine, at least in part, the Dennis case, because isn't, if, if you're right about the bottom line in Dennis being no counsel fees, wasn't that kind of a pyrrhic victory? It, I suggest that uh, the only question that was really presented in Dennis is whether or not the Commerce Clause uh, granted rights and privileges, which would be uh, a violation of which would be uh, protected or a remedy given under 1983. And I can envision possibly violations by state actors of the Commerce Clause in areas that have nothing to do with taxation. But that case itself happened to be a tax case. That case itself is certainly a tax case. It was one of the uh, Oklahoma and Nebraska were two of the seven states that are all sued on the same day by the same people for the same thing. This is part of it, Dennis, in, in this case. But I suggest that uh, Dennis, when it came back on remand to state courts, I understand that attorney's fees were awarded. I am not aware that the question of whether or not they needed to be for reasons not whether or not the Commerce Clause provides a basis for 1983, but whether or not uh, state remedies are adequate and therefore the state may not even entertain 1983 in the first place, I don't believe were ever argued or considered in Dennis. So in that respect, if I am right and it had been considered, then I think your answer would, could yes, be yes, it would have been a Pyrrhic victory. It didn't happen. And uh, so I, I can't tell exactly. But I, I do believe that the, the danger uh, to, the, uh, to the states and their ability to plan and administer their taxes uh, is, is quite substantial and could be substantial if the court were to open up 1983 to the point that it says Congress intended that you must apply any remedies that might be un available under 1983, even though you otherwise have uh, adequate remedies. It could cause, uh, I, I believe, uh, a great disruption in the state administration of their, their own tax affairs. I do not believe that was the policy or intent of Congress, and I believe they showed that policy when they prohibited the very same thing, prohibited the federal courts from doing the same thing. So I would suggest that if we accept the uh, petitioner's argument 
and it's to accept the, the concept that Congress intended to prohibit uh, the federal courts from interfering or supplying federal remedies in state tax matters, and then at the same time, without ever saying so, they intended to mandate that state courts apply those federal remedies. I do not believe that that was the intent of Congress, and I believe that the decision below should be affirmed. Thank you, Mr. Johnson. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.